Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Wheel Talk podcast. We are back this week. We have finally the original crew back together. Gracie Elvin. Gracie, hello. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> hey, guys. <laughs> I, don't, I was just testing that sound out. It's terrible. I won't do it again. Won't no, it I loved again. it. I loved it. Please bring it back. <laughs> Lauren Rowney, hello. Hi. Good morning. It's It's been a while. It has been a while. Too long, in fact. We do not have a world tour race this week coming up The with the cancellation of the women's tour. There's a gap in the calendar now. So we decided to do a Q&A episode. We got a bunch of questions from the Escape Collective members, and we're going to try to answer as many as we can. We might have to do a part two because we got some really in-depth questions we're excited to answer. But before we get to that, this episode of the Wheel Talk podcast is made possible by the generous support of our members at the Escape Collective. Monthly memberships start Start at just $1,199 American dollars, or you can save 30% on an annual payment. For more information, head on over to escapecollective.com slash join. That's escapecollective.com slash join. We also, when we started the Escape Collective back in March, we launched with a lifetime membership option. And I am so excited to shout out a couple of the lifetime members who signed up from the beginning and have really made the Escape Collective possible. And this podcast and us here today, a huge shout out to Chris Young, who I um, adore. He actually worked for our former uh podcast employers for a short time and was just instrumental in ad writing and is a huge fan of this podcast and I'm a huge fan of him so Chris thank you so much for becoming a lifetime member Libby Brown uh who is in the U.S. is a massive um supporter of the last best ride and just Sarah and women cycling and I'm super excited that she's also come on board to support this podcast Megan Hotman who's the cyclist lawyer, an incredible lawyer who helps defend cyclists. The next two names, like I really hope that I don't butcher them. So please forgive me if I do. Carl Wilhelm Alexanderson, thank you so much for your support. And Bodan Stepchuk, thank you as well. We're super grateful for all of you lifetime members for your support and and for backing us. So thank you so much. And uh, yeah, check it out, escapecollective.com slash join just the escapecollective.com we've got some some great articles on there and we're covering mountain bike and this weekend is the the next world cup race so that's pretty exciting should we try to get to these questions we got like there's a lot there's a lot of questions <laughs> and they're not like easy questions they're like in-depth questions i'm we're gonna start off with the easiest of all of the questions and that is from natalia do you <laughs> prefer dancing or singing please include the preferred rhythm in your answer <laughs> Oh. <laughs> I like it. I like that there's a couple of non-cycling ones in there. Lauren? I'm going to have to go with singing at the moment because I've seen a lot of Disney songs to <laughs> oh, yes. my child when he's uh, he's a bit upset or something. Um, <laughs> I think that it's the, the main one, when he hears it, he gets a smile on his face, is the one from Moana. And I think I know all the lyrics, but I can't think of the title of the song. So I, I hope that's rhythm. That's definitely the tune. <laughs> I can like think of the song sample? in my head. Yeah, yeah. Sing us a little snippet. Nope. <laughs> no nope. one needs to hear that except <laughs> I feel like mine is gonna be. No one. Everyone's gonna be like Ugh, when they hear my answer. But I love Taylor Swift. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> really? <laughs> 
Um, she's obviously, she's doing her eras tour at the moment and there's a playlist on Apple music. Well, probably also other where other places that's, uh, the, the set list for the tour. And I've been listening to that and I can sing along to every song cause it's mostly her hits and stuff. And, um, especially in the car, I sing a lot in the car. And I told this to Matt yesterday on the album files podcast that like, the poor guy is going to hate me after the Tour de France Femme of X Zwift because I am I just like cannot be in the car listening to music and not sing along. So I sing a lot. <laughs> I sing a lot. I don't have any rhythm. I cannot dance, but I am a huge fan of singing. I was in like the church choir and everything growing up. So it's. Oh, so you can actually sing. No, I can't, but I pretend that I <laughs> can. <laughs> I think I might I bet be done. You can sing but... a little bit. Thanks, Lauren. <laughs> Chrissy, what about you? Well, I definitely cannot sing. In fact, um, one of my sister's boyfriends a long, long time ago, we were, my sister and I were singing in the car and he, he just goes, has this shocked expression on his face. He's like, wow, I actually thought that all girls could sing like from birth and apparently they can't. You guys are awful. <laughs> so... <laughs> I think he thought that girls can sing as like they can't like like they don't poo either. So um, mm. yeah, I'm gonna have to say dancing on that. I'm not a very good dancer either, but it makes me feel good, and I probably don't do it enough. I probably should do it more because it does make you feel pretty nice. Man, what a wild thing to grow up thinking that all girls can sing. I know. <laughs> That's why I his laughed. XX boyfriend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, boy, you've got some lessons to learn. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and I promise I won't be the be- the easiest. <laughs> All right, let's move on to some cycling questions. David asks, do you think we'll see world tour riders retiring to race gravel in the same way that we've seen on the men's side? I don't That's think we're going to actually see as many women kind of transition to gravel as we have seen men transition to gravel. I feel like a lot of the women are doing both or are specific gravel that haven't done road. I mean, obviously there's like Ruth Winder retired from road and she, she's in the gravel scene. But other than that, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't think that that's going to be a thing as much. I feel like women retire and, um, and like have babies, obviously they have babies in, in the Peloton too, too now, but I think that women retire and focus more on a career outside of cycling, um, than try to like keep, keep that, professional career going with a gravel stint what do you guys think i think like uh us-based athletes maybe australians too i could see there being some interest if like you still have the joy and the love for the sport but you just don't want to be competing in that high echelon anymore that it is a nice way to exit the sport to be honest and i think the crit scene was a little bit similar in a sense years ago where you know, if you still wanted to do another year of racing and just have some fun and still train and enjoy cycling on a competitive side, you could go to the US and race a crit, skit, crit scene um, and earn some good money in prize money. And I feel like now gravel, um, there's still that potential in terms of earnings um, and you can enjoy racing your bike. So I can see it being attractive whether those athletes will pursue a whole nother career in gravel, it's really dependent. Um, I know some people who just don't want to stop racing after they stop racing. So maybe it appeals to, to those athletes. I always 
I always wanted to race crits when I retired. I I had the uh, the unfortunate um, timing that I retired, and then it was COVID the next year. But I feel like if it hadn't gone that way, that I would have definitely joined like a crit squad. Like racing Tour of America's Dareland in the mm. U.S. My second year racing was one of the highlights of my career, and I feel like going back to race the crit i've also heard corinne rivera say multiple times that when she retires she's just going to go back to crit racing with like the old uhc crew <laughs> try to bring them all back together like alexis ryan and uh yeah lauren tamayo such a good yeah salt and pepper <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't really have much to add to that i would agree i think like we'll see some more for sure and you know we're already seeing some doing both like tiff cromwell um but i think and and some riders who have the intention to race more for fun doing crits or gravel i think that we'll see some more of those it's a nice way to transition out of the sport but in general i think you just won't see as many as in men cycling and that's purely because of the family thing or the career thing because you're just not going to make that much money from sponsors or prize money in the gravel scene it's getting pretty good really but it's like i think females just struggle to either a emotionally justify it they feel like oh i need to do something serious i need to keep you know my life on a certain trajectory and feeling like you have to justify more fun i guess is difficult there's no right or wrong there but i think that some of us do struggle with that and it's difficult to have kids and race like hats off to the ones that are but a lot of people struggle even if you do have support like a lot of these gravel guys they've got two or three kids and they're still training as much or more as they did as pros and that's just not really doable for a female with kids even with some really good support would be a lot harder to justify like yeah money wise Dan asks, as women's cycling grows, what are the mistakes of men's cycling that can and should be avoided? And since we're not too far from the Giro and the Tour de France femme of X-Swift, is the increase in times team sizes for those races from six to seven a good thing? Do you, any, either of you want to take the first crack at this? Oh, this is, I think this is like a whole podcast of a question. Yeah. I was like... Uh, too many too many variables there I think like for sure for some things you know it's great to have some equality there for men's and women's cycling like for me it was always like oh how could you not have the Tour of Flanders or Rapara Roubaix like um, that'd be amazing to have like either a at all like Paris-Roubaix <laughs> or be like to have better broadcasting or on the same day or on the same weekend. Um, those events are just so big. They get such good crowds. It's like prestigious and exciting and great atmosphere. And, and then you're like, well, there's a lot of crap as well that doesn't work so well. Like the calendar sizes, um, the calendar uh, logistics, like stuff we have talked about in podcasts before about what the whole calendar could look like, multiple calendars. Uh, and I think that one of the good things about women's cycling is it's a little bit easier to watch. It's a bit shorter. It's a little bit more punchy, maybe less predictable. Um, I don't know. I think that's a really tough one <laughs> to answer properly because there's so many like 
pros and cons for lots of different things and it's such an old sport in men's cycling. A lot of people get hung up on tradition and I think even in women's cycling we can get sucked into the traditions that hold us back sometimes and I think that's almost impossible to to avoid some of those, the way that we do things, even if it might not be the best way. I feel, so I recently wrote an article on Escape Collective about um, the problems in the women's world tour, mostly around the the system that we've spoken about on the podcast many, many times, but that there's no middle tier for teams, that there needs to be a, a pro team category. And um I mentioned also that like the world tour team should be required to race the world tour races uh, because like in my eyes, the situation with Ride London and Turingen was, um, I guess, unacceptable feels like a strong word, but a bummer to see. Um, But I feel like I covered a little bit of this in that article, Uh, just mostly like that there's there's a lot of issues in men's cycling with the calendar and races that have been going on for quite some time that they want to keep going, but it doesn't really make sense. Like the overlap of Perry Nice and Torino Adriatico is you've got like two world tour stage races going on at the same time and it's really hard to follow. And I think also that the there for men, because the calendar is so big there the teams are also huge which means that it's really hard to follow like riders you love and and stuff like that I think for the women we have smaller teams which I think like we will teams will have to expand in the future and I don't have a problem with two world tour races going on at the same time um if it makes more sense like logistically like I wrote in this article about there being bringing back the tour of California. I I resurrected the tour of California. Um, and I wrote that I hope that teams would go to like Redlands classic and tour California, that the two were back to back and that teams had like a block in the U S but it would have to overlap with the race, like Perry Roubaix femme. Cause otherwise on the calendar, you just have nowhere to put it. And I don't think that the calendar needs to be paired back massively. I feel like this year's calendar seems huge, but Actually, like in hindsight for cycling fans, it's awesome. And it's awesome in terms of there being more names for us to get to know more riders that have potential. A problem I see with paring down the calendar is like riders like Rihanna Marcus, who've always been a worker, have less opportunities to win a stage of the Tour of Norway and thus kind of put their name out there to be a leader. And now you've got her contesting the general classification at like the La Fuelta Femenina. So I feel like part of the beauty of cycling is that there are many opportunities and I would, would not want to see those opportunities go. But I definitely think we're in a pretty good spot for women's cycling where we are relatively new as a sport. So like a lot of that tradition that Gracie mentioned, we don't have. And that means that there are a lot of things in the women's scene that could easily be tackled before they became bigger issues like the calendar. We don't have a Dauphiné. We don't have Torino Adriatica. We don't have all of these week long stage races that the men have that they've been around for so long that no one's going to cancel them in order to make the calendar make more sense. But they also like 
they there is a lot of clutter going on and i think we're very we're dangerously close to getting cluttered uh the women's calendar especially if you add like turingen into the world tour and you've just got so much and i think my biggest i think the biggest thing that the women can learn from is the men's calendar so uh, yeah i think it's there's a lot that that the women could take away from the men's to make it to avoid some of the issues and i think yeah the calendar is one of the biggest ones but i also would like to see you know i wrote in that piece that i would like to see the tour de france famine actually no we'll get to it i'm gonna leave that i'll leave that thought (laughs) for later in the podcast but yeah it's it's an interesting question i i think like in terms of teams going from six to seven for for um the longer stage races that that makes a lot of sense especially like when you have a longer race uh there's more there's it's pretty rare that a team finishes a race like that with all of their riders and if you have only six riders for a 10-day race it's really um it, it can you can like there's a possibility you'll finish the race with like one rider and that's <laughs> that sucks for a team and sucks for that rider so i think it's better in the long run for women to have seven on the start line for races like that this is such a huge question we could make <laughs> we could make a whole podcast about it lauren what do you think what a, what's with the men's and the women's i feel like you guys covered all of it almost you did a really good job um <laughs> as best you could granted we probably have five minutes for one question um yeah, I was just thinking about the whole money aspect and we've spoken again about this, like if the risk of growing too fast is that there's several layers to it, but um, if we just look at the men's side, so their teams are really, really big because they, you know, have commitments to world tour races and they have to to fill these races with riders. Um, and we know that the business model of cycling isn't sustainable the current way that it functions um sponsors coming in and out every few years so i think with women's cycling we're getting to a really good point now where some of the teams um have got some really good financial backing but i do wonder and i guess this is a question that's going to come a bit later on with regards to a big sponsor pulling out is um again if it keeps growing too fast and we need a women's world tour team of 20 riders at minimum wage traveling to all these races, how much bigger the budget is going to have to increase to. And um, I'm just thinking, I'm sure some of these world tour teams are like just on their limits. Um, so that's, that's sort of the risk I see at the moment. Is it better to actually just have smaller teams in a smaller calendar and just build out the, the in-between Um, which is right now this continental level that doesn't really exist. I mean, I think you make a really good point. So the biggest issue I see facing the men's sport and the women's sport cycling in general is the sponsorship model. Like the, there's a huge issue with none of the teams getting any revenue from TV coverage and all of that money, like all of the revenue from the tour de france femme and the tour de france the men's tour de france obviously goes to the aso and that there's like this massive issue with that because for example we have silicon valley bank and tibco have both pulled out of sponsoring ef educate ef education tibco silicon valley bank 
anyway, I, that's such a huge bummer because like that team has been such a long running team in the U S and the management of that team have put in a lot of work to get to where they are now and get to the women's tour and now women's world tour. And now you just have that team collapsing because two sponsors pulled out. So the sponsorship model obviously doesn't work, but I feel like that is such a massive problem that is never going to be addressed. Like I don't see the ASO ever being like, oh yeah, we're going to save cycling by giving the teams the revenue from the Tour de France. Like that's just never going to happen. And so I feel like, yeah, if there was some other way, but this is something that people have been yelling about in the, on the men's side for years and years, and it's never been addressed. And I, I just don't see it being addressed. I feel like if, if we're going to like save, no one can see my quotes on a podcast, women's cycling, it has to be addressed in other ways than budget because that's just like i feel like that is a losing battle that's a whole and I, yeah <laughs> i just want to add one more about the six or seven riders and it kind of flows on from what lauren was saying about managing team sizes and i think that ideally in the future it would be good to have seven riders in our quote unquote grand tours in women's cycling but i think right now it's unnecessary and it, in fact it increases the gap in the uh, level of performance. So imagine SD worked with seven riders just as an example versus everybody else. They don't need an extra rider and it just creates a bigger gap between the ability of a team's performance between those best teams and those smaller teams. And we saw that in the Tour de France fund last year, that big range of abilities in the peloton. And I just don't think that you need to exacerbate that. I think that the field size was good enough. Plus we are seeing quite a number of teams the last couple of seasons already struggling to field full teams at many other races and if they're thinking we need to make sure we can save seven riders for the Tour de France firm maybe that is also affecting other racing that's a good point that's a really good point maybe SD work should only be allowed to start four (laughs) 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 what do you guys think about in regards to my article what do you think about two of the points that I made that the the women, the women's world tour team should be required to attend world tour races. And also that the Giro tour and Vuelta should all be 10 days. If we're going to call them a grand tour, then they should all be the same distance. What do you guys think about those, those the two Giro, points? the tour and the Vuelta all 10 days, yeah, all 10 days. Um, or like all eight days, like they don't have to all, they, they don't have to all be 10 days, but I think they all should be the same length. Yeah, there needs to be a bit more consistency there. It's just that it just goes, it goes kind of all the way back into the calendar conversation of like how do you make a coherent year that makes sense to logistics and the racing narratives that you want. Um, so, and and with the Tour de France firm, it's also how that fits into the men's tour as well like do you want it to finish on a Sunday or does that not matter do you want it on the back of the men's tour or does that not matter in my in my fictional calendar I moved it I moved everything around so it was by region so I had like the Italian one days I had the Australia races in January I had the UAE tour and also the Chinese races the Guangxi and um, Chengming Island I put those in February um, I didn't do research about weather 
in China in February, <laughs> but I also, this is fictional and it's never going to happen. So who, who cares about it? <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> Abby's alternative universe. <laughs> yeah. In March, I had like, um, in, in March, I had the Italian one days and also Drenta in between the Italian one days and like moving into Belgium. So like Omloop, uh, Bruges de Pana and everything. And then I kind of like built into the stage race season with Zulia and Burgos leading up to the Vuelta. Cause then you get like this nice storyline where you have two smaller stage races leading up to a, the, the first like grand tour of the women's season. And then I had the same thing going through the summer, like building into the Giro. And then I had tour Romandy building into the tour de France femme avec Zwift at the end of August. And then I had the Ardennes and then worlds as the final race of the year. The reason that I moved the tour de France femme from July to August is because we have this obsession with the Tour de France in cycling and everything builds up to the Tour de France. You're always talking about who are going to be the riders of the Tour de France, like what teams are going to bring, like what the course is, all of this stuff. But then after the Tour de France, those races all get forgotten. Tour of Scandinavia, completely like off everyone's radar. Everyone's cracked on cycling by the time you get to that race. And I think it's such an amazing race that just gets shafted because it's right after the Tour de France Femme. And so I moved everything around so that the Tour de France Femme was the final stage race of the year. Like the, the, the cap basically on like an entire season. And then there was only like four race days before worlds. And then the season's done. Nothing after worlds. The the worlds is the final race of the year. It ends the season. There's no like forgotten races that happen in October, like the races in China. <laughs> so that was that was my thought on the calendar was that to move the Tour de France, then you don't have this the post Tour de France slump. And with Worlds being the final race, then that then that's like a huge, like really exciting end to the season rather than like these races that happen afterwards that no one wants to be at and no one wants to watch. <laughs> Like Roman I do. US, I, yeah. I love the logic behind this calendar. I must say, yeah, and I, I like, like the idea as a rider that Worlds was the last race, and you were just like, oh, yes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. yes, Noosa is coming. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, Lauren, you and I have been in that room a few times. Thank fuck, yeah. <laughs> it's over. Oh. No more training days. This is <laughs> the day before Worlds. This is our last training day. Yeah, think about it. <laughs> yeah. Good, I like that. But I do wonder if, um, I mean, we won't know because we've only had the Tour de France firm of X Swift once. So, do you guys think that you know the build-up last year was great? There was a lot of hype around it. I always felt years ago when I was really into the men's Tour de France. Um, like years and years ago when I was not even living in Europe. It was always like this sad moment when it was over, and I guess all viewers feel the same. Do you think that um, with the the women's Tour de France femme that we've taken some of those viewers who want to keep watching a stage race um, because they're having like this slump, as you call it, Abby? Like what, do we run the risk of, of losing those viewers or do you think that there's a good enough gap in the calendar that um, even men's viewers of, um, sorry, not men, 
men's cycling viewers will also want to watch the Tour de France fam. And then my other question is, will it cross with the Vuelta of the men? I think they should completely change the whole men's calendar as well. So in my fictional okay. world, <laughs> okay, <you're right. laughs> there we go. That makes more sense now. Obviously, in my... Lauren. <laughs> in my fictional world, they've also moved the men's tour de France to August. Okay. And, uh, and then the same thing happens because I think having the women's race right after the men's race is awesome. I was skeptical mm. about it in the beginning, but I think it's fantastic. You have like so many fans. Um, virtually, but also on the roadside that follow both races. And I think it's just, yeah, I think it's awesome. I, it's going to be really interesting this year to see what happens with the women's race starting really far away from the men's finish. If that means that there's a lot less fans on the roadside. Cause I know last year for people who were at the race, they saw a ton of people had that had followed the men's race, just like hop on to the women's race. Cause it started the same Uh, in Paris where the men's finished. And so I think this year will be interesting to see what happens there because the women's race is starting like a completely different part of France. Where is the men's race finishing? Not Champs-Élysées, was it the last time? No, this year they still finish on the Champs and then next year they finish in Nice because of the Paris Olympics. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I would would love to know the the number of retained... um, what are we calling them? Viewers, attendees, like on the ground. And I just will add one more note, Abby, because um, I, as a full-time working normal person, (laughs) (laughs) our summer holidays in Europe, um, pretty much, I think for most countries in Central Europe, the dates are around the same. So that's why as well that the Tour de France is in the summer holidays. So people can you know, just take their normal summer holidays. And that's basically revolved around when the children are on holidays. So August could work because the kids are still on holidays then. So uh, I think that would be something to consider too. Yeah, I mean, I think like in terms of of climate change, oh God. Oh, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> um like changing the Vuelta to the first Grand Tour of the year wouldn't maybe be the worst decision on the calendar. Like it is brutally hot for the men racing the Vuelta in August or in like later, later August. And so seeing that Grand Tour shift to earlier in the year, probably. And like, look at the Giro had horrendous weather. Yeah. With multiple, like this year, what I think one stage was affected because of weather. I think last year, did we have two stages? One year there was like a, like a, they had to cancel. I don't remember. But anyway, the weather in, in Italy, especially in the Dolomites in May is like not good. And so if they were to move those grand tours around, then it would also, there would be a much less weather impact on the race. We wouldn't have, you know, like really annoying retired men who doped complaining about how the the men nowadays are are soft because they don't want to race in horrendous weather and like put their themselves in danger (laughs) so i mean those guys would complain about anything so it doesn't really matter but but yeah i feel like moving grand tours around uh especially as the climate changes is not the worst thing do you know what um, we should and um, we should get a vote from the listeners on this if they're interested it would be a really 
interesting conversation to have because I don't know if anyone has really podcasted about this in the cycling realm, but we could get on an expert and actually talk about how climate is going to impact our sport in the next 15 to 20 years. And you could really dive into the calendar then um, and just, yeah, I think it'd be a really interesting listen. I agree. I think that'd be awesome. We could totally do that in like one of our off season pods when, when there's no racing and we kind of do interviews and, and go off. Tangents. Yeah. <laughs> lots of tangents. Anyway, yeah, I think speaking of tangents, we should, we should ne- go back to a question. <laughs> How do you guys think? Yeah. Yes. To wrap that one up, we've got some good <laughs> we ideas, just created our own but question. we have no power and it's not going to happen until a bunch of people retire from cycling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, this one is a funny question. <laughs> is like this the hot one. pants one? This is the hot <laughs> pants question. All right. Oh. Tom asks, uh, he said, my wife and I are both very curious and not passing judgment. Riders should be allowed to wear what they find comfortable, but what's the deal with Chloe Duggar's hot pants? <laughs> <laughs> Is this something about comfort because of her leg injury? Um, the leg and scar clearly seem to bother her still. And after she won the ride London the stage, she looked to be in a lot of pain. Um, how big name of a rider has, has to be to quote, uh, how big of a name does a rider have to be to request a kit accommodation like that? Can anyone choose different inseam lengths? This one I, I found really funny mostly because, well, I've been racing with Chloe since she got on a bike for the first time. Um, so uh, she's always worn her shorts like that. It's not a recent thing because of the injury. I think she just likes to wear her shorts incredibly short. And the reason that I wanted to put this question in here, there's two of them. One, I know there's been like when she first, when she was first racing on 2016, um, the, the U S team, she, the, the, the DS would get mad at her because when she'd hike her bibs up that short, you can't see the sponsors. on the face. <laughs> <laughs> So she actually got in trouble for that. Um, and the other reason is because I do the same. I, I, well, for me, it's a comfort thing. I just, if the bibs are pulled really far down, then it like is pulling at my leg skin and I really don't like it. So I wear my bibs pretty high up as well because I like the loose, the loose Mm. fabric, um, that I feel like gives me more range of motion, comfortable range of motion. And, uh, I'm a Velocio ambassador and Olivia Dillon <laughs> gets so mad at me because <laughs> I've like hiked up the Velocio bibs really far. And she's like, that's not how you're supposed to wear them. So I did a photo shoot with Velocio like back in 2019, right after I retired. And she spent m- the majority of the photo shoot, um, pulling your pants down. Pulling my pants down. <laughs> Look, I, I used to hike my pants up um, just during training rides because I didn't want the tan lines. So I used to adjust them during the ride. I will admit I've done that. But for racing, I always liked my necks, like, long. I don't know. It just felt better for me. Yeah, I'm a long necks as well. But um, I, yeah, I, I, I get that. It's a comfort thing. It's a style thing. Everyone's got their own style. The Italians are mad for like the bandana or the like the headband under their helmet, even in the middle of summer. It's like, yeah. 
Some people just get stuck on something that makes them feel good and there's nothing wrong with that. That You can be so snobby in cycling and there's no shortage of that. So certainly not judging either. And uh, with the other part of the question, like how big of a name do you have to be to have that kind of accommodation? I I think it's not so much a name. It's more like depends what team you're in and what the brand, the kit brand will want to allow. Like I've been in, I was in Greenwich for most of the time, but we had a whole bunch of different brands across that time. And some of them loved feedback that would give you whatever you wanted and you could just make lots of little changes and whatnot. And other brands are like, nope, this is what you're getting and no custom stuff. So it's like, I'd assume that that they've got a good brand and they yeah, uh, the give days? her what she wants. Rafa pulled out, right? Or not? Uh, yeah, Rafa pulled out of Canyon Sram. They are wearing Canyon branded kit at the moment. Um, but I remember like on HTC High Road when when that team was around, Ali Stalker telling me that they all got like measured for their kits before the seat like in October at October camp, the the kit sponsor would come in and like measure everybody. So everything was super custom and they all had their names in every single piece of clothing, like on the back of the of the collar and on the bibs and stuff um because it was all really really tailored to the riders so if you wanted shorter bibs you you just requested that in october and they gave you shorter bibs but that's obviously like yeah completely depends on the clothing sponsor um there's i've i've also like i was on a team once where we all just got literally the same size and i had to go and get all of my stuff tailored because i was like a climber and so I was wearing massive jerseys that were just like (laughs) in the wind (laughs) and I had to like go get all of my jerseys tailored. We only got three jerseys, so it wasn't like that (laughs) big a deal. This was a a UCI team, might I add. Um, (laughs) uh, But yeah, it like totally depends on the kit sponsor. I think if Chloe is a big enough name and also like their best rider at the moment. I think <laughs> yeah. if she wanted to have shorter bibs that still showed off the sponsors, she could probably call up Canyon and and get that figured out. Um, the second part of this question, also in relation to Chloe, was um, Tom said, I, I'm all for Chloe choosing her own path, but I was not at all comfortable watching her after her win at Ride London. If she was really in as much pain as implied, I wonder if the team, if that's the team's responsibility or, um, yeah, what well, in that situation where she clearly couldn't even walk to the podium on her own. Um, I think in Chloe's situation for her injury, the team has obviously been really, really good about making sure that she's fit to race. They pulled her out of the Vuelta early uh, in order to prepare for for the races coming up and not to put too much pressure on her injury and her leg. And it's obviously something that she's going to be struggling with her whole career, and she's said that. And I think, like, as a fan... Somebody also asked this in in the um, in the Discord, like, should we be worried about Chloe? And I said we shouldn't be worried. We as fans, like, we shouldn't worry about Chloe. We shouldn't worry about if the team is taking care of her. The team is going to take care of her. They're going to be uh, they're going to be asking her about how she's feeling. She's also got a really um, incredible team of people around her 
outside of the team that is going to be making sure that she's taking care of herself and that injury. So I think, yeah, like while it was, it was probably uncomfortable to watch her walking to the finish, um, the way that her leg feels on the bike is probably completely different to how it feels walking. If you've ever done intervals and then walked upstairs, you'll know that the two are not cyclists can't, can't walk upstairs. (laughs) They can can put out like a thousand Watts and they can't walk upstairs. Um, so yeah, I think it's a really interesting question and especially like watching, watching Chloe be in so much pain after that race, you, you want to be, uh, you, you want to know that she's okay as a fan watching. I think the team is going to take care of her. Yeah, I agree. Oh man. Speaking of Canyon Shram, should we address the doping? I guess. So. Situation. Do you want to yeah. say something? Um, <laughs> I can, I'll give a, I'll give a brief rundown. So on Sunday morning, just a couple days ago, as we're recording this podcast, the news came out that Sherry Bussett had tested positive for a breast cancer drug um, after she won a stage of the tour to Normandy. Um, in the press conference, her and her team claimed contamination, meat contamination, um, and said that she's innocent and she's she's not doping and that they're going to do everything they can to clear her name, which is obviously going to be really hard for them. In the meantime, she's taking herself out of racing until a decision is reached. Uh, yeah, I think this is a really interesting one because when it comes to doping, everyone... claims contamination uh even the ones who are definitely guilty of doping um and we we don't know anything about the situation other than what's been told to the media um i think personally for me it like really shocked me because women's cycling doesn't have as doesn't have the problem that men's cycling has had in the past when it comes to doping. We've had, we've had dopers. Um, it's not like we've never been touched by doping, but it's just way less prevalent. And, um, and I think, yeah, like one of the questions that was asked to me was, was, is this a testing thing that the women are getting tested more now? And I'm curious for you two having raced in the top, like, did you guys get tested a lot when you were racing or not? Did you think that they could have tested more? I don't think that it's a, I don't think they test females less. I think that actually there's gender equality in this one area in sport, (laughs) Um, which is good. No complaining about that. And it's more about uh, how competitive you are. I think it doesn't matter really about gender. It's about, you know, what level you're at and how many things you're winning, I guess. Um, Like Anamique was tested all the time when I was her teammate and I didn't get tested that much. So it was a little bit unflattering actually that I wasn't getting tested that much, but uh, <laughs> no, I would still get like a couple of randoms a year and a couple of uh, race, either randoms or podium. So I think, I think overall, I think for female cycling that it's not significantly less, it's probably the same or maybe a tiny bit less, but I, I would say that it's pretty much on par with men's sport. Can I add something here? I do wonder um, about this, well, you know, pleading contamination as the reason for coming up with a um, positive doping test. In Australia, we we have a lot of education 
around um, doping and supplements and all kinds of things. And particularly when you're coming up through the different uh, state institutes and back in the day with Gracie and I, the Australian Institute of Sport, I was so fearful about um, contamination of products that like everything if I took a supplement or a protein shake or something, everything had to be uh, checked and approved on, I think it was the CIDA website, right, Gracie, or even a link through the AIS. Um, so in terms of education, I think a country like Australia do, does really well in educating their their athletes. Like, you know, sometimes these things um, are in your control. And if you do go to the shop and, and you've run out of protein powder and you just decide to buy a random protein powder, there's always that risk if it's not um, approved or I don't know what the, the the different levels are here in Europe. But um, that was just something as an athlete I was very aware of and actually really scared of. And I wonder if in countries like Belgium um, they do as much education. It was almost like I felt like the fear of God was put into me when I was younger. Um it was the same in the U.S. Like I went to a talent ID camp and we had like an entire day where they were just like, don't take supplements unless you know exactly where they come from. The bottle could be contaminated, like all of this stuff. And every single team I was ever on also had like a three hour long spiel about contaminated products and only like take the supplements that the team gives you and stuff like that. And so I don't, yeah, I don't know. I mean, in this case, she's claiming meat contamination, um, for, yeah. Cause so I guess the, the cyclocross rider Tunerts who tested positive last year, he tested positive for the same thing in the same region of France. Um, he also has the same management, as sherry so they're they're contain they're claiming that it's meat uh, a meat product contamination that was eaten at the race um and obviously like she won't she was tested because she won and so we don't have tests from other riders who maybe eat, ate the same meat um I don't know. I think it's really tricky. And I also think that this opens a wider conversation about how women's sport is growing. The salaries are growing. And thus, are we going to have a problem with doping a la the men early 2000s? Um, as there is more at stake on the women's side, which I, I don't know if we should even dive into that today. That's a yikes yeah nah. topic I think like it's just good to bring up I really feel for her either way it's awful it's a nightmare situation for an athlete and I think it's best not to speculate because we don't have all the information so I think that we just have to leave it up to the experts and hope that it is a good outcome for everyone involved and if not it's a lesson learned hopefully all right, Martin asks, it would be good to hear your view on whether you think the SD works and Demi's dominance is good for women's cycling right now or not. Just going from one negative topic to the next. <laughs> I don't think it's, I personally don't think it's good. I love to see many different riders many, winning many different races in many different styles, but it's also cycling. It's not 
unique to women's cycling that one team and one rider is dominating that happens in the men's all the time. So I, I don't think it's good or bad for women's cycling, uh, as a, I think it's good for women's cycling as a sport because it encourages people to work harder, to try to get on that level, to compete. Um, and it makes the racing more aggressive, more dynamic, but I think as a viewer, I don't love it as a fan. I don't know. I love Demi. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of Demi. I still would like to see, I don't know, Canyon Stram, FDJ. I want to see FDJ win a world tour race. <laughs> so yeah, I don't think it's a bad thing. It's obviously it gets a little bit tiresome sometimes, but I think like one of the reasons that we love to watch sport is because we love to have heroes and often the heroes are outliers. Think of Michael Jordan, think of Serena Williams. Like we're going to keep buying tickets to see those athletes because they're friggin' amazing and sure they dominate, but we still love to see it anyway. And I think that it's a, uh, you know, we're, we want, we want to root for the underdog too. And that's also like, it's such a hard balance to strike there of like, you know, being a fan of someone that is so good and then trying to be fans of people that are trying to win too. And I think that if you can beat SD Works, I feel like that's even a bigger victory and that we can cheer for that as well. So I think like it would be nice to see a little bit more matched competition, but we've said it in previous podcasts, it's going to make everyone else lift. I think that there might be a few um, foundational issues that might be affecting this anyway you know like I don't want to suggest this as a real solution but would a salary cap make a difference in teams um, to level out the uh, talent and uh, how they're paid a slightly increased minimum salary make a little bit of a salary cap so that teams like SD Works aren't just buying all of the talent <laughs> or not a salary cap but like a team salary cap I guess so I don't know if that would help or hinder our sport at the moment because we're trying to get everyone paid better and better, but maybe the fact that some teams can only pay minimum to all riders and SD Works is paying a lot to some riders, if not all of them, that's going to make a big difference and that's pretty tough to overcome. So it's a it's an economic kind of conversation as well as just a performance conversation. That's a really great point. I think you hit the nail on the head there, actually. Um, if we look at the composition of some teams, like, um, I don't want to, yeah. Um, Jacob Alula, for example. I feel like this year they've, they've really underperformed, um, but they've lost a lot of, you know, that core group of riders. Actually, since basically you retired, Gracie, it's slowly... You know, we've seen them lose Anamique and Spratty and just some of the uh, Sarah Roy is also gone. So um, that team, I know that they pay the minimum wage to all their riders, the men's minimum wage, which means that every rider on that team, um, I think Neopros still get the Neopro wage. And that's maybe why they also have so many new riders with no experience in Europe is perhaps because of budget. Yeah, I don't think a salary cap is the worst idea. I mean, that's been floated on the men's side as well as a way to counter, 
UAE and Yambo Visma and Ineos just like buying everyone mopping the floor with everybody yeah. yeah but yeah the money problem in women's cycling is not something that we will I think at this point like it's amazing that women are even being paid a livable wage um we never would have thought that possible when we were racing, <laughs> at least I wouldn't have. No, it's my eight thousand dollars a year. <laughs> but also, I mean, you can have women in the same race, and one woman is still earning, say, ten thousand euros, and the other is earning three hundred thousand. That that is well. This is this why is the gap that we're like, talking about that is a huge gap. Yeah, yeah, and this is why there needs to be a middle tier, like. Continental teams should not be allowed to race world tour races. They should have a world tour race should be made up of world tour teams and like two to three pro teams. Continental teams should be racing not against it's like such a massive and it's also dangerous, especially as the races keep getting faster and harder you know how every year we have one thing that we talk about in every episode <laughs> and like two years ago it was live <laughs> and this year and last year it's like we need a pro team category. Yeah. Pretty much we'll just never be happy. But also I do want to point out that like it's not even that SC works has always been dominant. It, it, it's not that this is a new thing in cycling. Cause obviously it happens in men's, but like, also it's not a new thing with SC works because even before as bulls dolmens, they still were buying up all of the best riders. I mean, at one point they had like Voss van de Bregen, van Vluten, like all on the team together. And so it's not like it's a, it's like a new thing for that team to be dominating. There was just a, point in time there where other teams were able to rise to their level and buy up some talent and and really challenge them especially Trek Segafredo in 2019 and now they've just upped their game again and we saw good things come from their dominance before in terms of the um the level of the women's peloton and I think yeah we'll see what happens next but it there has there has to be good and bad I think in their dominance it's a it's a double-edged sword. All right. <clears throat> uh, the next question, D asks, also, I don't know, some people have like, um, like usernames, and so I don't know what their names are. So I just went for a letter for this one. Uh, any chance that we see the Women's World Tour races pushing over the UCI's distance limit? Um, I know longer isn't always better, but. We have. We spoke a little bit about this, I think, in the the whole, like, should there be a women's Milan San Remo? And also, like, there was that one really long stage of the Giro in 20... Yes. Yep. That's um, Lizzie... Lizzie Banks yep. one. Yep. And that was a pretty long stage in the Tour de France of them with Zwift last year as well. I think it shouldn't I think change. That there's... No, I think yeah. this is a, a short answer. Longer isn't always better. And I think when they do include those longer stages, they they do often get it right. Like it is in the right tour and the right time. And quite often that that's a day for, you know, the break to go up the road and a chance for the breakaway people to actually have a chance at winning. And also it takes the pressure off people behind. So 
quite often, I think um, teams that are fighting for GC are happy to have that easier day. But also like, okay, maybe the, the UCI having a distance limit is stupid, but women's cycling is built on shorter, faster racing. And that's something I never want to see go away. I'm happy if there's one or two long races throughout the year, but I don't want, no one wants it to change the way that women race their bikes. That's something that we have over the men that makes women's cycling more exciting. Agreed. And commentating for like seven hours is... I was going to say, Chris is never going to have to talk for seven hours about women's (laughs) (laughs) All right. I think we have time for like two more questions. Um, There's one that I'll just answer really quick because it's easy. Um, Why are all the women's races labeled Avex Swift? There's only two races labeled Avex Swift, and it's the it's Paris Roubaix Femme Avex Swift and the Tour de France Femme Avex Swift. And the reason that it's Avex Swift is because Swift is the title sponsor. Um, This is a uh, Swift loving podcast. Here we love Swift and what they've done for women's cycling. So I think. Like I, I get mocked at Escape Collective for always saying of X Swift whenever I say the Tour de France Femme of X Swift or Paris Bay Femme of X Swift because they always just shorten it. But it's like the I think it's hard to overstate how much good Swift has done for those two races and for women's cycling in general, and um, and them being the in the name of those races, um, really is like the least, the least that can be done to thank them for what they've done. Um, especially with the tour de France femme of X Swift, I think like in a previous iteration of this podcast, Lauren and I talked about how we were skeptical about that race, but with Zwift on board, we knew that it would be done properly. And, um, and actually, well, there's another question farther down about if if the Tour de France Femme, Elo asks if the there was a timeline for making the Tour de France Femme or Giro of Vuelta longer than a week. And I went straight to the source and asked um, a friend at Zwift, Kate, if they there were plans to make the Tour de France Femme of X Zwift longer than it is. And actually, I'll just throw her answer in right here. Hi, I did gather from the podcast this week that you're going to be at the tour. So excited. Um, great to have Rebecca Charlton on too. I love her. So regarding the race, um, absolutely the race is going to grow in the coming years. I can't say exactly at this point um, how many stages we'll add. The The focus is on um, making this race the best race it can possibly be and growing it in a sustainable way. So we'll be, you know, working with ASO and, and teams and riders to, to find out what, you know, what, what the proper rate of growth is. But right now it's mostly focused on just building fans and building investment and building sponsors um, by making the current race the best it can possibly be. So yes, it will eventually add stages and the, the dream is definitely a multi-week stage race, but we want to do that in the most responsible way possible. So yeah, that's why there are women's races labeled Avex Zwift because that's the title sponsor. Should we do one more and then wrap this up and come back to these questions next week? Sure. All right. Um, oh, there's one that's um, like super long. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Cool. We'll save that. One. <laughs> save that one. 
I think we could just do like a yeah. short one. Um, how late will the Gerardana leave it before publishing the, in, the race Great info question. about this year's race? I like that. Before I mean, publishing on. useful information. You know what? When they finally, finally publish information, it probably won't be useful. <laughs> 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 Those profiles, yeah. they always lie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah sorry andy we we don't know and we don't have an answer for when the giro is going to publish the <laughs> even the stages i think there was a leak the stages leaked so they're out there in the world but um <laughs> oh man the giro is just this is like classic giro like <laughs> imagine working uh, yeah. for the organization no i don't want to <laughs> <laughs> well let's hope that it's a good race but yes, it's not very well organized, just to put it lightly. <laughs> to be fair, the men's race is apparently also not super organized. Mm. And isn't that organization meant to take over for next year? Correct. Yeah. Maybe they're less, less organized than the current organization. Look, guys, I, I just dealt. <laughs> I just, no, I'm not going to say it because. <laughs> say it. No, it's just Italy. That's all I want to say because even when I was in Switzerland for work last week, we were dealing with um, the Italian side and the way they operate is just completely different to the way that we function in different parts of Europe. It's just like, yeah, it will all yeah, it'll, come together. It'll, it'll be fine. How, how are we going to get 19 <laughs> mountain bikers up the mountain and then down safely with no guide? <laughs> I'll call some people. Nah, they'll yeah, get there. So no, I think it's just yeah, very Italian. Apologies to any Italians listening, but <laughs> the best I can say is like it's they're probably if we have any Italians listening, they're probably like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, it is um this is an ongoing thing with the Gerardana and um and the jokes about the profiles being just incredibly wrong um is a thing that we've joked about for many it's kind years. of funny when you're racing the race funny and terrifying because <laughs> yeah. it's like it's the non-categorized climbs that create the fear because oh. <laughs> uh, if the if the profile in the book looks like a serrated knife you know you're in trouble because <laughs> it's not little bumps that you're going to be riding over I'll never forget. You're probably going to struggle to make time cut. I think, oh, that was me, the Giro 2015. We were, like, riding along the coast or, like, some massive lake, and the climbing started pretty early in the stage, and it was meant to be a pretty big day. And then we're climbing, and um, I was like, oh, how much – I turned to my, my best friend, Carly, and I was like, how much longer is this first climb? And she just looked at me, and she's like, we're not on the climb yet, Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> and then I put my hand up and I was like, Gruppetto! <laughs> Gruppetto! Anyone? I think I had 20 uh, people sign up. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, we'll be back to tackle the rest of these questions because we have some really good ones coming up. So make sure to tune in next week. We'll We'll wrap up this podcast with a quick... What are you obsessed with? Oh, every week I forget to think about. Oh, I've actually got something I'm obsessed with. 
I'm obsessed with my new specialized Levo SL mountain bike. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, that's what I'm obsessed with. Oh, and Shadow that's and Bone. <laughs> oh, it's so I good. Watched I watched that on my travels. And, and, yeah. I'm enjoying that. Mm, yeah. I don't, I'm, I'm curious what they're going to, they like basically compress the second and third book books into the second season of the show. I'm curious what they're going to do with the rest. Like if they're going to, cause they, they changed the ending. Mm. I won't spoil it for anyone listening, but they changed the ending. So I'm curious what they're going to do with that. Cause they've, they've really, yeah. All right. And I have one more. I actually have. They're going off book. You're obsessed with yeah, me. It's because I've been, <laughs> I've been traveling alone. Um, if anyone reads the the Seven Sisters books, the the final installment has come out, um, and the author she sadly passed away from her battle with cancer, and her son has has written the well finished writing the book for her. So, I have been obsessed with baby clothes. Um, <laughs> anyone who has kids knows that when when your kid grows up, you get to get them a whole new wardrobe. So for the first like two years, it's like every what three to six months, baby gets a whole new wardrobe. And so we were we were in Montana and she was in her six to twelve month clothes and we got back to Europe and I had to change out all of her six to twelve month to twelve to eighteen month. Um, which I spend months accumulating. And then when I finally like put it into the drawers, I'm like, I have overdone it. <laughs> She's just gonna she has a different outfit for every day of the month. Your kid is like such she's so well dressed. She she dresses better than me. My poor <laughs> yeah, me too, my man. poor son, he dresses like Hannes and I, kinda like I don't know, slobs in a way. Or little <laughs> Harry. <laughs> All of these couples well, are so since we live in Andorra, there's like some some pretty nice like designer clothes that goes on <laughs> sale because they have these massive sales. So she actually the other day she wore a Stella McCartney what? sweater. Oh my god. I don't even own any Stella McCartney. Not even not even Stella for Zara or Adidas or any of that. Like I can't afford it for me, but for Lila, it was it was on sale, so I got her a Stella McCartney sweater. But man, I it's so exciting to like I just love I'm a huge fan of fashion and dressing and um and so I I get really into dressing her and especially like in the first week of a new dress cycle when she has like a bunch of new clothes and I get to dress her in brand new things. It's really exciting. So I've been obsessed with washing and labeling all of her new clothes because apparently like you know did you know that you're supposed to wash your clothes before you wear them yes like when you buy new clothes you have to wash them right away and then my mom told me religiously baby why because of all the 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 dyes and stuff the poisons in the, the fabrics so you should wash them it depends where it comes from obviously but for most clothing particularly fast fashion should wash everything, particularly undergarments, because obviously that's going directly to some sensitive areas. And like Zara, if you buy Zara, for example, you have to wash it first. Um, I didn't know this until I had a baby. So yeah, I spent like three days doing like two loads of washing a day. Oh <laughs> to be fair, that was also all of her, I like washed all of her old stuff and packed it away, which is like sad. But then you get to break open the Stella McCartney sweater and you're like, oh, man, I forgot I bought this. This is really exciting. 
Um, and then she immediately dribbled blackberry juice all over it. Another reason I buy secondhand clothing. But that is, the, yeah. yeah, that's the problem. And also, I think this is the last time that I accumulate new clothing for my child. I think, like, um, as you move into the 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 walking, rolling in the dirt phase, it is it's less less smart mm-hmm. for them to wear. But she's still like a little bit. She's still like relatively clean. So, but anyway, I've had a lot of fun. A lot of fun with that. <laughs> she she's been doing the outfits of the day lately it's been great (laughs) gracie what about you i'm well i'm obsessed with op shopping so pretty much everything i wear most of the time is secondhand so that's why i wash my clothes because i just want them to smell a little bit better um (laughs) uh, that's my like long-term obsession currently i have I listened to the recommendation by Beck Charlton last week and that was a good recommendation. So I'm definitely getting into that podcast. So you're going to have to listen back to that episode to find out what that was. And I also listened to another podcast. It was a quick series to burn through. It was called A Very British Cult. And I really enjoy listening to true crime and I've been winning myself off true crime because it's awful. Um, It's not good for you. But I think listening to things about cults is still interesting and less bad, maybe. <laughs> anyway, it was really interesting, easy to listen to. And I, I I think it's like I'm really, I think I've probably mentioned this a few times, I'm quite interested in psychology and how people's minds work. So I find anything to do with cults fascinating because you're like, wow, how did that happen? But it's like a real good window into the human mind and, yeah, just interesting so that was a good one i don't know about cults but i would live on a compound yeah with my favorite people in the world i would move them all onto a compound i think that's getting a little bit more mainstream nowadays like we used to really consider that as quite hippie or alternative but i think that a lot more people are looking into that as a lifestyle sometimes just for financial reasons or Mm -hmm. say you're a single Mm -hmm. female and you just want to have a community around you with a child so um yeah i think that's interesting too thank you so much for listening thanks to you too for an awesome conversation we'll be back next week to answer more of your questions and then it's tour de swiss time as we build up to the Gerodonna, which will have daily coverage uh, it's very exciting daily coverage of the Giro. 